Good afternoon and welcome to Everyday Law. I'm your host, Bob Clark. As always, any of the opinions that are offered on this show are not those of Howard County Community College, its faculty, staff, and employees. And insofar as our audience divines any legal wisdom from this show, it is not intended to be legal advice for specific legal situations. If you need legal help, it is imperative that you speak to a lawyer and acquaint them with all of the facts so you can get the best legal advice possible. Our guest today is C. Justin Brown, a prominent criminal defense lawyer in Baltimore, Maryland, an alumnus of the Gilman School, Cornell, and the University of Maryland Law School, and a man with a fascinating background. Welcome to the show, Justin. Thanks, Bob. It's, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Sure, sure. Uh, I first became acquainted with Justin through the auspices of my friend and former guest on this show, Jerry Buting from Making a Murderer. And what Justin is contemporaneously famous for is having represented Adnan Syed, the sort of protagonist of the serial podcast and also the recent HBO series. And we will ask him some questions about that. But as always, we kind of seek from our guests some guidance as to how they got into the legal profession, what they did beforehand, and you have a slightly unique story in that regard, Justin. I do. Um, I mean, I guess the, the first step is that my dad was a lawyer, and he was actually a law professor at the University of Maryland. So, And my, my wife was a student of his. Well, okay. okay. It <laughs> seems like he, and, and he probably taught her civil procedure because I think he taught about two-thirds of the Baltimore lawyers' civil procedure. So, you know, I, I grew up in that world, and my dad and, and my mother, their friends, were law professors, so they were around the house, and we'd go on summer vacations with other lawyers. And I remember spending many boring hours um, <laughs> at his office <laughs> trying to find something fun to do while I waited for him. I was but I never, thought I, I never thought I'd become a lawyer. I sort of... I, I had a, a distaste for it, and you, you know those like those black um, binder clips that lawyers use. Yep. I always hated those things. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why. But anyway, so as soon as I finished college, I pronounced myself to be a writer, and I set out on a, a career in journalism that started in New York City, and took me took me all around the world. And it was um, it was it was quite an experience, and I think it was a a good, albeit unusual, transition into becoming a lawyer. So, did you have any actual writing prowess? <laughs> well, I I you know at first the answer is no, okay. I, I didn't. But my my last year in college, um, I, and I was not a particularly serious student when I was in college. Welcome to but the I club. But I had done really well. I had done really well in um, my writing class. So upon graduation, I, I moved to New York City, and um, I walked into the office of a, a very small newspaper called the Downtown Express. And it, it was actually edited by a legendary former Rolling Stone reporter. Really? A guy named Jan, Jan Hodenfield. He, he actually wrote the Rolling Stone cover story about Woodstock. So he was, he was a legend. And I, I walked in and I introduced myself and I said, you know, hi, I'm Justin Brown. I'm from Baltimore and uh, I'm, I'm a writer. I'd like to work for your newspaper. So he hired me on the spot, which was 
great, but the the bad part about it was I wasn't getting paid. It, I he he hired me to work for free. So, you know, I, I literally started at the bottom. You're a savvy negotiator. <laughs> yes, yes I am. So you parlayed that, however, into all sorts of work on behalf of other entities, including the Christian Science Monitor and the New York Times and another a number of other famous uh, newspapers. Right. So I, um, I, I kind of bounced around from in, in the um, independent weekly newspaper scene in New York. And then at some point, I, I decided to apply for a job at the Associated Press which is a, a great training grounds for any any reporter. And they ended up hiring me, and they sent me... And, and w- when the Associated Press hired you, at least back then, you didn't really have much control over where you would be posted. Mm-hmm. And I was sent out to New Mexico. Doesn't sound so bleak to me. <laughs> well, I, I was sent out there for the purpose of covering the state legislature, which meant that I spent you know, about 10, 10 hours a day covering the legislature and then another few hours writing about it afterwards. And um, I, I rarely saw the light of day. So I spent a lot of time in a small cubicle in the uh, the New Mexico legislature's state house. Now, is, so, that, is that Bill Richardson era or what era is that? When he I was think, um Oh boy, I, I think he was. Was he a senator then? He might um, have been. And, and and the governor then was Gary Johnson. Oh, that's right. That's right. Who who was, you know, at that point hadn't really emerged onto the national scene as he subsequently did. He was sort of a a relatively unknown um, governor, but um, yeah. So I, you know, and I was covering um, sort of small state issues. Um, they were dealing with gambling legalized gambling and um, a few other things like that. But uh, so I, you know, I, I, I did not like it out there. And um, I was lonely and I was seeking some greater adventure. And, and previously, prior to that experience, I had, I had spent some time working on a, on a documentary film in the former Yugoslavia and um, I really liked it there, and I thought it was fascinating, and I thought it was a place that was going to generate a lot of news in the future. Boy, so, were you prophetic. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it, it wasn't hard to, to read that because they had just been through the Bosnian War, you know, that and Croatia and Slovenia, and all of that was just sort of the ink was still drying on the peace deal settling that. But what was going on in the breakaway Republic of Serbia, which became the country of Serbia, there was an ethnic dispute in the south in a region called Kosovo. And everyone who followed the region viewed Kosovo as the next powder. They viewed it as a powder keg that was going to blow at any minute. So I figured that if I could get somewhere close to Kosovo, and I could learn about it, that would be a really good source of material that I could write about. And I, I first I moved to uh, Budapest, Hungary, and then um, after spending a little time there and, and mostly being on the road traveling, I, I moved to Belgrade, Serbia, and set up camp and became a foreign correspondent there. 
So let's digress for just a second because I suspect our audience doesn't know a great deal about Yugoslavia or its successor nations, but essentially it's a nation in Central Europe that is composed of different ethnic states, as it were, which have subsequently become countries. And it was under communist sway for a long time, and there was the ruler Tito. And when Tito died, things sort of changed, and it has been changing ever since. Is that fairly accurate? That's right. It, Tito died, I think, in 1982, I want to say. Somewhere in the early 80s, uh, yeah. But, but the, yeah, then there was a slow unraveling, and... Tito had been very effective about keeping all of these different ethnic groups and all these different religions united together, and and he did so with an iron fist. But once once he was gone and there was no longer a strongman to hold the country together, what you had what you have were sort of um, dictators emerging from each of the the provinces who. Um, who, you know, were, were doing anything to preserve their own power and to establish autonomy. And that's what led to all the wars that um, occurred in Yugoslavia. Slobodan Milosevic is a name from the past that maybe some of our audience is aware of. And one of the issues in Kosovo was that it was part of greater Serbia, but it was predominantly populated by Albanians, as I recall. Right. So um, the important things to know about Kosovo is that it, it was, you know, and, and it, it had been established as part of the Serbian territory, and it was where all of their most important cultural monuments and, and um, churches and, and things like that were all located in Kosovo. So historically, it was kind of the homeland of the Serbs, and in more modern years, it became mostly populated by ethnic Albanians. And um, the Albanians were largely repressed for years and years by the Serbs. And, um, you know, really extreme forms of discrimination and repression were um, abounded in Kosovo. And that, in turn, led to all manner of problems in Kosovo, including slaughter. Right. Eventually, Eventually, the ethnic Albanians formed a guerrilla army, um, the the KLA, and the KLA started um, cropping up in in the late 90s. And um, the Serbs met that with, um, you know, the the KLA were lightly armed. They they used AK-47s and Kalashnikovs, and the Serbs had tanks and helicopters and things like that. So um, it, it was a mismatch from the beginning. And the Serbs responded to the insurrection with with brute force and eventually with what I think we can fairly call ethnic cleansing. Sure. And this is about the time that you happen upon the scene, correct? Right. I I was in the general area. In fact, when the war, there was one cataclysmic event. It it was a a standoff between the, the Yashari family and some Serbian police that resulted in in a massacre of the Yashari family. When that happened, I was in Bosnia on assignment for a, a magazine and doing a story about Sarajevo. And I remember getting a call from my editor at the Christian Science Monitor, which was one of the papers I was writing 
for, and they asked me how quickly I could get down to cover what was emerging as the con, you know, as a, as a international conflict or international crisis. And um, I, I remember telling my editor, like, as soon as we hang up, I'll get in my car and I'll drive down to Kosovo. Weren't, so, you, weren't you conspicuous as somebody who was not a not an Albanian or a Serb? Yes, I of course I was, but. Um, but back then, you know, th- this was a war that the, the dynamic of covering it, I think, is is different from a lot of what we see today. The fact that I was an American and the fact that I was a journalist offered me a great amount of protection. You know, we would we would take duct tape and and write you know write out letters with it on our cars that just said TV. You know, we were we were TV, we were media, and that was enough to protect people. And you could kind of drive around in the war zone and get very close to the front and have great access back then. So in in that sense, it was a it was a great and, you know, I, I hate to say anything. It was a great war, but it was a great war to cover from the perspective of a journalist. Sure, sure. So there, there was a. I'll, I'll give you one one, one quick um, anecdote. You love to have an talk anecdote. about <laughs> st- sticking out as a foreigner. Um, I ended up uh, being in Belgrade when NATO and the United States were bombing Yugoslavia, or bo- bombing Serbia, and at that point, you know, that was a very hostile situation because I was American, and um, the NATO planes were dropping bombs, and NATO was led at that time by the U.S. So you had U.S. bombers flying over, dropping bombs, and I'm living there, and I'm a U.S. citizen. So um, one of the first things that I did when that happened, and I was I was living with a, my Serbian girlfriend at the time, um, we went out and we got some hair dye to dye my hair black so that I would look more like a Serb and less like an American and it would be easier for me to blend in at that particularly dangerous time. Oh, my. So you ultimately covered this conflict for a variety of newspapers, and it it was, for all intents and purposes, resolved. Was that the result of the bombing and the intervention of NATO, or what brought it to a conclusion? Yeah, I mean, what, you know, and, and... I, I still don't think that they've reached a, a final conclusion to it, but um, w- when NATO started bombing, th- that's when the Serbs the Serbs took that as their green light to to go into um, Kosovo, and, and this was during the air campaign, which lasted for 78 days. But during that period, they they pushed out many of the ethnic Albanians in Kosovo and, and turn them into refugees. But then when Serbia eventually surrendered, all of the ethnic Albanians came back in and, you know, as part of, of the surrender, international groups kind of went in and monitored the situation and Kosovo was put into a um, sort of a semi-autonomous state within Serbia. and. You know, this is around 99, 1999. Since that time, Kosovo has gradually become more and more independent, and the control from Serbia has been, become weaker and weaker. So 
I mean, you know, I haven't been back to the region in a long time, but um, they're almost an independent country right now. And that seems to be the direction that it's heading in. Sounds like it's ultimately probably a positive conclusion. I think so. Um, I mean, but it's, it's an imperfect solution because while the Serbs did the majority of the, they committed the majority of the atrocities that occurred there. And, you know, they're, they're the ones who are probably most culpable. It was part of their country and um, it does have great value to them. So they sort of lost, you know, this big chunk of what was Serbia. So, um, and, and I'm not saying that they didn't deserve to lose it, but, you, you know, there, there had to be a winner and um, there had to be a loser, and that's sort of how it played out. So somehow you made a leap from doing that to being a lawyer. Can you sort of illustrate that? Right. So after, after being in the war for, for more than two years and for living through 78 days of airstrikes, I kind of I kind of lost my mind a little bit. I can <laughs> see that. Um, and you know, I I, I try to figure out you know what what am I going to do next? And a lot of my fellow reporters were going on to the next conflict zone. I ended up coming back to to Washington D.C. and working a desk job for the Christian Science Monitor. I was their national security correspondent. But it just, it just wasn't, I, I found it to be really boring, and sure. um, I couldn't do it. And I, I didn't want to, and actually another thing that, that happened around that time, a friend of mine, a, a fellow reporter, um, got killed in, in a conflict in Sierra Leone. And, um, you know, that made it very clear to me that, I, I had to get out of the war reporting business. So I, um, you know, I kicked around a few ideas and I thought maybe I would try being a lawyer. And one of the, one of the things that appealed to me about it is as a journalist, you're, you're always kind of begging for permission to get information from people. You know, you, you don't have the power to force people to give you information. But as a lawyer, you have the power to subpoena people and depose people and do things like that. And, and that was very appealing to me. I thought that I could be someone, not, rather than being someone who just covered the news, I thought I could be someone who actually made the news and someone who actually could directly help people and bring about change in that manner. Now, have so, you, yeah, I decided to go to law school. Have you conveyed that quaint notion to President Trump that things can be subpoenaed and people can be com compelled to testify and that sort of thing, or have you had the opportunity? Right. Well, I, you know, it's funny because I, I mean, right now I'm a, I'm a criminal practitioner and criminal law practitioner. A lot of my practice is in federal court, and in federal court, when when a subpoena is issued, it, it's something that is is taken very seriously. And um, I think I can predict precisely what would happen if someone were to defy a subpoena in the United States District Court. <laughs> the reaction and the punishment would be swift. Um, but, you know, obviously we're, we're in this weird um, impeachment proceeding, and subpoenas don't quite mean the same thing 
in an impeachment as they do in a criminal legal proceeding. You know, it does seem as though there have been myriad other things that subpoenas have been issued to the executive branch that they have ignored. And it's something after 38 years of practicing law that I just can't wrap my head around. Yeah, no, and and that's the, you know, one of many corrosive influences of of what's going on and what the Trump administration is doing. Like, this is is the rule of law, and we're a country of laws. And, you know, when when the president doesn't follow the law and doesn't comply with the courts, um, you know, I I don't know what what we are anymore. And, um, yeah, we're, we're in uncharted territory, obviously. But it, it, it certainly is, it's not a positive thing. It is not. So you ultimately did attend the University of Maryland Law School, and as I recall, you clerked for a federal judge after that. Right. I was, um, I was super, super lucky that I, I got a clerkship with Andre Davis, who he's no longer a federal judge. He's, not, he's now the city solicitor of Baltimore right. City. But... Um, Judge Davis was, you know, that was my kind of goal when I was setting out to get a clerkship. If there was one judge I could have clerked for um, and I had my pick, it, it would have been Judge Davis. So I was lucky enough to, to get, get that job, and it was, a, it was a great experience. I was sort of, the way that he had used his clerks in the past was that they only worked on civil cases because, as, as you know, a a federal judge has tons of civil cases and tons of criminal cases. Sure, but I, I was also able to persuade Judge Davis to, um, you know, let me work on some of the the criminal cases and work on some of those opinions. So it was a great experience, and obviously, you know, it, it it's something that every lawyer should have the um, privilege to do if if it's possible. And um, it gives you a great insight insight on onto how it works on the other side, sort of behind the curtain. I gather you have found it highly useful in your present practice. I have. I think it it gives you sort of, you know, and and you're throughout the course of litigating a, a complex case, whether it be in state court or federal court, you're going to run into situations where there's there's no clear answer and you're not really sure what you're supposed to do as a lawyer, um, what type of motion you're supposed to file or how you're supposed to play your hand. And, you know, you're, you're, we're constantly dealing with these ambiguities. And I think once you've been on the other side or at least been close to the other side and worked behind that curtain, um, it gives you much more confidence to you know, either try something different or um, some, something a little bit out of the ordinary and um, be, be more decisive. And, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a great thing. So I know our audience will be interested in things associated with the Adnan Syed case. First of all, how did you first cross paths with him? After, after my clerkship, I... I was working at a, a small firm that did criminal defense and did post-conviction work. And I was, I was just leaving, like I was transitioning out of the firm into opening up my own practice. 
And sometime around then, I, I started getting letters from, from Adnan, mm-hmm. and, which was really unusual because normally a criminal defendant does not get to choose their own lawyer. You know, either the, the vast majority of criminal defendants are appointed, whether it be public defenders or some type of panel lawyer. Mm-hmm. Um, those who might have more resources, usually their family goes out and finds a lawyer for them. But um, at that point, Adnan had already been in prison for about eight years. So he had been quietly doing his own research and looking at a few different lawyers. And, um, you know, he just he just wrote me a letter asking about my practice and what I thought about his case and seeing whether I was interested in taking it on. And, you know, we had some correspondence back and forth. Um, subsequently, I met with his family and some friends of his family. And, um, you know, eventually they, they decided to retain me. And at that point in time, he had long been convicted, was serving time, and you were looking for some sort of post-conviction relief, correct? Right. Um, He was serving a life sentence, and he had always maintained his innocence. And one of the the early issues that that we latched onto was that um, there, there had been an alibi witness that at the time when the murder occurred, um, there was a witness who had had said on multiple occasions that she remembered being with Adnan at the at, at a library just off the school um, at precisely the time of the murder. Yet this um, alibi witness had never been contacted by the defense attorney. So, in in the work of, um, you know, doing post-conviction work, that's sort of the most basic of all claims of ineffective assistance of counsel. You know, here here is this alibi witness who, if believed, is going to prove that the defendant is innocent, yet the defense attorney, for whatever reason, fails to contact that alibi witness. And, and it's also an alibi witness who is willing to talk and who was willing to testify, who who was a neutral witness um, and who would have been fantastic on the witness stand. So a, a catastrophic error was made in the case. Um, there was paperwork and documentation to prove it. And, um, you know, I, I always thought that that issue was going to be enough to reverse the conviction. And you were for some period of time correct in that. Yeah, I was. Um, it, it sort of went back and forth. Initially, um, you know, we, we filed a post-conviction, and there were, there were a couple post-conviction hearings between uh, 2010 and 2012. And we initially lost the, the first post-conviction when no, nobody was watching and um, largely because we couldn't get Asia McLean and we couldn't produce her in court. She had moved out to Oregon and our, our attempts to contact her and to bring her to Baltimore had failed. And um, so we, 
but nonetheless, we had to go forward with the hearing, and um, it, it didn't come as a huge surprise when we couldn't produce her that we lost that hearing. Uh, subsequently, you know, we, we started the appeals process, which truly was a long shot. I mean, statistically, it, it's, you, you have like a 2% chance of successfully appealing the loss of a post-conviction. And, um, we, you know, we were, we were kind of in the middle of that process when uh, one of the family friends of Adnan's, a woman named Rabia Chaudhry, um, started reaching out to, to a journalist and trying to get some kind of media attention on the case. And um, I guess the, the rest is, is kind of history. Yeah, hi, this is Bob Clark. Uh, Justin Brown's interview was of sufficient length that we've broken it down into two parts, that Justin had a fascinating career as a war correspondent before becoming a criminal defense lawyer and ultimately representing Adnan Syed of serial fame. And so for your benefit, I'd recommend listening to both segments because it does inform his work as an attorney. And if you want to get into the juicy parts about serial and what's transpired, make sure you don't miss the second segment. Thank you. This has been Everyday Law. I'm your host, Bob Clark. Farewell. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.